World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are once again with another episode of a World of Work podcast. What are we speaking about today, Jane? Oh, James, today we're talking about one of your favorite ever topics. So we are talking about sleep and regenerative activities with Dale Wheelahan who is a behavioral science researcher from Trinity College, Dublin. Lovely. I'm super looking forward to this. Let's jump into that conversation. Okay, so here we are in the main body of today's conversation, and we've got a really exciting topic lined up today. We're going to be exploring the effects of sleep and regenerative activities on our performance. And those of you who've listened for a while will know that sleep is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, so it's excellent to be exploring this. And we're really lucky. We're, we're joined by a guest today, Dale Wheelahan, who specializes in this area. He's actually a behavior science researcher at Trinity um, and a physio working at Vitala University Hospital in Dublin. Um, Dale, could you introduce yourself to the audience and say a bit more about yourself and your background? Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks, first of all, guys, for having me here. It's, it's great to get to talk about these sort of topics with a general audience. Um, and I hope that you find the things that I have to say somewhat useful today. As you said, James, I'm a behavior science researcher at Trinity College, and my main research has been focusing on uh, the impact of fatigue on performance in two particular cohorts of professions, um, the surgical profession and the physiotherapy profession. And alongside that part time, I worked as a physiotherapist um, during the, the first wave of the pandemic, and I've subsequently kind of more gone into full time research since then. And I suppose what I'm particularly interested in is how the role of fatigue within healthcare systems manifests in, in and of itself, and the particular role of sleep and recovery in trying to mitigate that fatigue. Latter half of my thesis has actually brought me to a really interesting part of um, performance management, performance science, and how can we actually change the whole narrative around the burned out healthcare worker to actually that of the thriving healthcare worker. So maybe we might get to touch on some of that stuff today and how sleep plays an important role in that. That sounds brilliant. I'd love to touch on some of that stuff. I'm not going to jump right into it, as as tempting as it seems, because I'd like to explore a little bit more. But changing that narrative from burnout to thriving sounds great. And I... um, you know, the conversation today will focus quite a bit on the, the healthcare space, but I'm sure a lot of lessons are applicable a little bit more widely. Um, when, when you were speaking there, I was kind of reflecting, it feels so intuitively the case that when I'm more well-rested and, and recharged, I kind of know what it, what it feels like. And, and I know what it feels like when I'm, you know, not at my best from those perspectives. But how do you, how do you speak about those different states? What, what's the sort of path maybe that you think of people going through from being well-rested to, to not being well-rested? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a Pandora's box, really. Um, I think when you go to different countries and when you even go to different professions, the kind of language that's used around recovery and sleep, rest, it it differs quite significantly. So from my own personal experience, really, it's about, okay, a majority of us work within this space of being all right. You know, we're a little bit fatigued at the end of the day, particularly during covid you, you know, that fatigue seems to be lasting a little bit longer um, and kind of going into the days after and the subsequent days after that and, and even into our weekends. When we talk about then, I suppose, that more chronic level of fatigue, we're talking about 
that idea of burnout within healthcare systems and within healthcare workers. And it's really interesting how a lot of this, I think it's, and excuse me for pronouncing this awfully, feminology, which is basically, you know, how people interpret certain words and how those words might change over time. And a lot of our language and discourse around fatigue and stuff like that came from the industrial revolution. And it came from this idea that, you know, man was a machine. So when you think of terms like grind to a halt, burned out, um, you know, using up all of my energy, they came from this idea, you know, that man worked the same in the same mechanisms in the same ways as a machine. But we know now with modern research that humans have these additional elements of psychosocial elements that a machine doesn't have. So we're using terminology that doesn't actually cater to, I suppose, the the manufacturing of the human being. Um, so that would be kind of when we, I think we really need to perhaps change the narrative around what language we use and how perhaps dangerous that language can be in expectations of what it means to recover. I, I love that answer. Um, I was, one of our friends of the show is another organizational psychologist and he likes to go running and he um, shared something the other day about how when he goes running, it helps him recharge and it's a real opportunity to defrag was the language he, he used. And I love that, that sort of transition from old industrial mechanistic language towards more modern computer-based, but it's still doing some of the same types of things, isn't it? It's kind of com- conflating or, or, you know, combining humanity with, with mechanisms. What type of associated language would you like to see in this space? Are you more in like a natural language space or what would helpful language be in this domain, do you think? Yeah, I mean, from a research perspective, it's obviously useful to have common terminologies, but I do think ultimately this has to be be really about what do you feel in yourself? And I think as, as much as the industrial revolution language has, has dominated, we've also had the medical language dominate. You know, we've had terms like malaise, um, neurasthenia back in the old days was this kind of, you know, weariness and, and, and dreariness. And the sort of medicalization of what might be actually quite normal phenomena within an individual has, I suppose, created this kind of culture that, okay, it's actually not normal to feel this way. And I, I think actually it's it's the total opposite. So when we talk about the, the idea of fatigue, there's two main theories that kind of dominate this, this realm. The first one is cognitive load theory, which I'm sure some people listening would have heard of. It's that idea that you go to your day's work and there's so much kind of information that you're taking in and it increases that cognitive load that you feel throughout the day. And the alternative one then, which is really emerging from the psychology research, is called a motivational theory of fatigue. And it completely changes the narrative around what causes fatigue, what are the effects of fatigue, and how fatigue is actually very much an individualized process. So what causes you fatigue actually might not cause me fatigue at all, uh, and vice versa. That's pretty cool. Um, It's good to have those drawn out. When you were speaking a little bit there about the language and, and whether or not it's helpful, something occurred to me, which is if we look at things like happiness, which is a separate thing, you know, a lot of a narrative that's been around is we should strive to be, you know, happier, happier, happier. And and, and some people feel that there's a negativity with that level of aspiration because it's unsustainable and, and fundamentally inhuman to maintain happiness. Instead, people say perhaps we should aim to be contented or satisfied with the ups and downs and the level of happiness that we have. And that's a more uh, human, a more realistic, a more helpful way to think about our engagement with that set of emotions. What's your view about our relationship with our levels of fatigue and 
um, I guess, energy. What, what's a reasonable expectation for us in that domain? Sure. Um, great question. I think with, within the motivational theory of fatigue, the whole narrative has changed that actually fatigue in and of itself is an emotion. So if we begin to actually view fatigue as an emotional signal, that's really telling us, okay, you need to pause the brakes here. Your mind is telling you that, you know, the goals of which you're currently doing are competing with alternative goals. Your AKA, your mind wants to be doing something else. Your body wants to be doing something else. You should really take that on board and reconsider, okay, should I continue on with this and risk, you know, increasing that level of fatigue or do I pause and take a break here and do something else that might help me feel a little bit better? So I think when we talk about fatigue, fatigue actually is, is the emotional signal that can help us, I suppose, change our behaviors and help sustain that level of well-being and happiness. That's good. So it's it's a form of sort of physical feedback that we can interpret as uh, as just about as feedback as guidance to to change our behavior in a positive way. Um, you sure. you said there that we should or we could you know take this as a signal and change our behavior so that we do something else that helps us uh, re-energize. If, if we don't do that, and if we are in this state of fatigue or depletion or or I particularly like the word neurasthenia, which I'm I'm gonna use more in everyday language because obviously that'll be helpful. Um, if we if we are in that that state. How does that impact things like our performance? Yeah, and, and this is where the, the whole psychology of fatigue gets really un, like very complex. And I think there's an awful lot more research to try and, I suppose, weed out how this relationship with performance um, decrement occurs. So if we think of it as, I suppose, the beginning process. So let's say, James, you, you're doing a task and you feel you know you've been doing it for a little bit of time i think people typically think fatigue comes from the amount of time that they might be doing a task is that mm -hmm. a fair assumption yeah I, I would say so yeah sure so when people begin to continue on that task okay so they get that emotional signal of fatigue and they're thinking okay i'm just going to keep on i'm going to push through this you know it's five o'clock on friday is coming up and I, I just want to to push through this and what they end up risk doing in that instance is that they end up having the fatigue after effect. So it's seven o'clock at night and yes, you've completed your task, but you're absolutely wrecked and you, you don't have any capacity uh, to do anything else for the rest of the evening. And I'm not going to touch on it now, but I will just mention that there is a way to change that pathway. Um, and I'm sure you've probably touched in another podcast around the idea of flow and work, mm. but uh, I talk about that later on in the podcast. So if we think about that, when we when we talk a little bit then about, you know, fatigue and, and you talked a little bit about burnout earlier, is this like a, a scalar relationship? Do, do we go from, you know, a little bit of fatigue to a bit more fatigue to a, a lot more fatigue and then into a, a decline? Or, or do we is this like a step change process that we go through as we decline? Or can we sort of maintain a level and then do we fall off? Or, or again, is that bespoke for individuals? Yeah, good question. So I think the, the common narrative around fatigue is that it is only occurs when we begin to see some form of decrement within performance. But actually, we can pause the brakes much earlier on in the process and stop fatigue from building up um, within a task or within the working day. So fatigue actually only occurs really when our performance decrement from fatigue only occurs when we continue on with a task that is challenging us cognitively. We, we've decided we're not going to take that break. 
but if we're feeling a little bit fatigued you know and we're you know we we decide that we're going to pause it it's unlikely that we've actually had any sort of performance decrement prior to that instance so it, it is a complex relationship and it, it's ever evolving unfortunately we still don't understand it a huge amount and the reason for that is that primarily a lot of this performance document research came from this idea of the work fatigue hypothesis dating back to the early 1900s and it very much came from that idea okay what is the maximum amount of time in which we can push people to work without performance decrement or without sort of any compromise within efficiencies in our in our work working environment and we're beginning to see now with ideas like self-determination i suppose the variability within individuals and how individuals motivations change within the workplace that actually we have all these other elements that we've we have so much more research yet to explore that's really um that's a really interesting uh point and i think it's something that our listeners will be really familiar with where very maybe theories or, or hypotheses that have been steeped in history and in a different particularly in an industrial or manufacturing period have kind of massively influenced and we're only really now unpicking what we need to learn about in order to understand what would better help us have thriving lives in modern day. I want to I want to just move on a little bit and ask you a little bit about sleep because we're beginning to see like um, some books come more books coming out it's more popular discussion point people are beginning to talk a little bit more about things like quality of sleep and all those sorts of things and I guess just for for sort of to help the listeners when we talk about sleep how how does what does sleep do for us how is it helping us uh in terms of thinking about things like energy performance good question jane i think we're we're in the the phase now you know we had back in the early 2000s that and, and i suppose preceding that the dangers of smoking then we had you know the importance of diet the importance of exercise and i think we are now entering into the revolution of the importance of sleep for a myriad of different reasons and that is because of the explosion in research in sleep particularly since the 1960s onwards when we, we were, began to be able to objectify sleep using things like eeg prior to that we had all of these hypotheses about what sleep was we can go back as far as aristotle when he thought that sleep manifested itself when gas um gas from the from the stomach evaporated into into the brain and, and caused us i suppose to, to collapse so we, we have a much better understanding of sleep now and with regards to its impact we've we've established that it has effects on um i suppose technical domains when it comes to learning uh, co cognition and also affect or kind of emotions so if you're feeling quite sleepy in the workplace it's quite likely that if you're going to have difficulty learning new things and if you do learn certain things you're actually not going to retain that information very well particularly when with cognition your your attention your ability to make effective decisions um, and particularly in healthcare the right decisions for the patient and then affect and i think this is perhaps the one that people know most intuitively your mood is much uh, is is very well impacted by sleep deprivation and you're much less likely to be collegial i suppose with your colleagues yeah i think that would possibly be familiar to a number of us and then i guess i guess that means that if you go to the other extreme like to the extreme of of sort of extreme sleep deprivation which you know certainly we've heard over the last few years huge stories about um, doctors on 24-hour shifts and, and all of the types of things that uh, stretch people working in the medical profession in different ways. Um, how bad can 
the impact of sleep deprivation be? It's a it's a great question, Jane, because I don't think we have the alternative of what the optimal looks like. We've had cultures of sleep deprivation within uh, particularly the medical profession and within my own research within the surgical profession dating back to the 19 or the 1700s the kind of idea of surgical training in and of itself came from this guy called James William um, Halstead who created the idea of the residency program and I'm sure you've, you've come across the idea of residence whether it's from watching Grey's Anatomy or, or being in hospitals but it's, it's this idea that you have to reside within the hospital and with that then you might go into hospital on a Monday morning and you might not leave until maybe Wednesday evening and we've created a culture within healthcare where that is acceptable so one of the really interesting things about the founder of this training model was that he actually himself was a cocaine addict so the actual sustainability of such a model and um, for optimal performance was fallacied from the very from the very onset so we have a situation in healthcare where we don't actually know how bad the issue of fatigue and performance decrement is. We can only measure off what is the baseline today and what it is in 10 years time or 10 years beforehand. We've never been in a situation in healthcare where our doctors are well arrested. It just astounds me and yet doesn't surprise me at all how many of our systems within our societies are built on fallacies, false information, best guesses that turn out to be wrong. And yet Unpicking them is so complex because we have such complex societies and cultures now that it takes so long to then be able to try and sort of row back from from what we've done. I think that's just fascinating and also terrifying at the same time. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the some of the things that we've kind of seen little pockets of fads around. So there was a period where I first went into the workplace about 15, 20 years ago where sleep pods and nap spaces were like quite the trend in London and organizations were like putting in little places where you could take naps. And I guess it provokes the question, I certainly from a very personal point of view, it didn't really help me, but um, I just wondered, is there, is there a difference in terms of the types or quality of sleep? Can it be different depending on how long we do it? Is there a right kind of sleep we should be getting in terms of thinking about performance and, and sort of re recharging, if you like? It's interesting. You talk about those sleep pods, Jane, 20 years ago in London. We only got a sleep pod in our hospital last year uh, for the first time during the first wave of the pandemic. So it's funny how even within sectors, the kind of idea of sleep technologies have differed um, in time and, yeah. and length. With regards to interventions like those sort of interventions, they certainly do have a place, I think. But when you are putting a bandaid over a gaping wound, um, you're not going to solve issues of sleep deprivation by inserting one or two sleep pods. So if you have a context where you know staff are under-resourced, staff have very little autonomy over their work and feel like they can't actually engage in any sort of rest, like we have this idea in in healthcare where you carry a bleep on you at all times. So even on your rest periods, you're actually contactable by anyone in any, in any instance. So how can you actually effectively switch off in, any, in, in those sort of instances? So yes, they do certainly have a place when it comes to cultures which actively promote rest. And I think we're really seeing things like, you know, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, where they really want their staff working to the very best of their ability. And 
in those sort of contexts, it's really important because they really need creative thinkers and sleep and rest is really good for, for um, creative thinking. But I th certainly think in healthcare, it's not the solution. When you talk about, I suppose, the different types of sleep, and I'm a big advocate of the, the evening nap myself, mainly because I rise quite early. I rise at four in the morning and I then take, tend to take a nap at around one for about half an hour. And I find what it does is actually it gives you that bit of a boost of energy. So instead of having a coffee, which we know will you know spike the kind of uh, cortisol within the system, it will block the adenosine receptors, which will stop us from actually getting a good night's sleep later on in the evening. A nap is a really quick solution to just increase some of that alertness short term. But we shouldn't we shouldn't be substituting those sort of sort of short naps for what is the gold standard of seven to eight hours of sleep a night. I've always wondered about that, so it's helpful to know. Um, and I think your point is a really good one that we see across the board around anything that affects our well-being, mental health, physical health, etc., which is this consistent desire to find solutions to the symptoms rather than unpicking the problem. Um, <laughs> so things can, yeah. do you know what I mean? And I feel like we see that the classic, the classic I would give examples of is organizations paying quite a lot of money to bring yoga and head massage people in to relax everyone when actually they could just have better task management systems that might help. Um, so true, so, Jane. And I think we have this within healthcare. We talk about, you know, the idea of burnout and well, well, you know, we offered you a well-being um, class. Was that not enough? And, you know, it, it really resonates to how, 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 first of all, difficult it is to untangle these issues, but also how poorly understood the actual causes and effects of, you know, things like fatigue and burnout are within the healthcare set, setting. You know, they're not simply solved by educational intervention. Absolutely. And I think, I think, you know, one of the challenges and the blessings of, of healthcare systems is that they're so huge that sometimes it's it's very hard for any one person within that organization to figure out how you might start to unpick that structure. So it becomes one of those things that's too big. So they 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 pick away at it, but fundamentally it becomes a short, a, a sort of like you described, a band-aid, right? A plaster. I want to I want to just ask you one other question, because um I think it'd be really interesting to get your perspective on on what there is that says about how effective we are at judging our own levels of sleep deprivation and whether whether it's something that at least being aware of it can help us or whether or whether it's something we're not, you know, as humans we're not brilliant brilliant at. Yeah, I, I mean, the short answer is no, we're not very good at assessing our own levels of sleep deprivation. But the, the, the promising answer, I suppose, is that we can get better at doing it. So the, the kind of digitalization and the rise in technology within, you know, objectifying healthcare outcomes has been promising. You know, we have I, I, I personally used for quite a while the Aura sleep ring, which really provided me with some great um, objective metrics with regards to how long I'd slept, what my heart rate was throughout the night, how much time I'd spent in different stages of sleep. And in doing so, it increased that level of self-awareness for me as to what the behaviors were that I need to do in order to try and get a good night's sleep. So I was recording the stressors and the easers from my day, and I was able to correlate them with what was a good night's sleep. But I, I actually... I'm probably going against the narrative here and saying that I think that there is some issues with regards to overemphasizing objectifiable outcomes for things like sleep. 
because if you become over if you overemphasize you know achieving a certain goal of eight hours 20 uh, minutes of sleep a night and you don't achieve that the subsequent day you enter yourself into a spiral of stress responses which is going to subsequently impact you negatively the next night's sleep the next night's sleep so this is all really about habit formation so you know the ability to be able to increase self-awareness through those sort of self-assessment techniques is good in the first instance but you need to be able to develop those habits independent of those techniques i think we've spoken a few times about you know the the risks and dangers of goal setting and, and you know becoming a slave to metrics and things like that so it, what you've said there really resonates and, and I'm sure many people listening can you know connect with that feeling of looking at the clock and go oh no I've only had six hours sleep it's going to be a disaster or whatever it happens to be so I think that's a good call out um you said at the beginning you've done a, a mix of work here looking at physiotherapists and at surgeons and exploring sort of impacts and experiences and um, sort of processes of sleep in, in those two populations. What's the difference between the levels of sleep these populations get? Have you got any thoughts on their different experiences and relationships with sleep? Yeah, thanks for asking this, James. This is this really excites me. This this fascinating, uh, the fascinating findings I suppose which I found, which I found from what really is two very random professions when you put them together. So obviously, I'm quite biased in the sense that I am a physiotherapist myself. But what we actually began to see through quite systematic findings was that our surgeons were sleeping less. I don't think that's um, brand new information. So our surgeons were sleeping on average six hours of sleep a night. Hours without any sort of on-call associated work and within Ireland and, and I'm sure the same actually within the UK surgeons typically do on-call work at least once a week so that means our surgeons are doing 24 hours a week at least once a week so you can imagine the impact that that's having on sleep quality but what we be act, what we actually found was that when we act when we assessed levels of fatigue between the two professions that they were quite similar and this is actually quite a startling finding for me because we think of physiotherapists within healthcare systems as being, you know, the very active, the very healthy, the kind of the, the, the Greek god, I suppose, of, of healthcare workers who look after themselves well. And yet we were similarly here experiencing the same levels of fatigue. So when we did a bit of a deeper dive into this relationship, we explored physiotherapists' causes of fatigue. And we began to actually see as a predominantly female uh, dominated profession that it was actually those additional responsibilities that females often find themselves having um, while juggling work and home responsibilities that was contributing to this fatigue. So while surgery may be a male dominated and yes, subject to all of these additional work um, variables which contribute to fatigue, that's not to say that, you know, females within healthcare systems and particularly within female dominated professions aren't experiencing similar levels of fatigue but just for different reasons that's a fascinating outcome isn't it i mean that that is a whole conversation in itself about you know gender roles and equality and um you know how we manage this and and i presumably there are aspects in there about the different types of activity that affect us be they um you know spread across the different professions from the, I guess, the focus and attention of surgery versus lay term, obviously, and then maybe the emotional burden of potentially being a carer and, and that diversity must lead to such different experiences. Um, brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. I, it would be cool to, to learn more about that. Um, if I step back a little bit, in terms of sort of sleep over lifetimes, then, you know, you said surgeons are running, you know, six hours of sleep and, and that sort of certainly fits with our expectation of that industry. If, if we think about longer term impacts, if, if we look at maybe a cohort who are in their 
seventies or eighties, and, and you might not know this. Do we see changes? Does does prolonged variation in either sleep or experience of fatigue lead to impacts on things like life expectancy or you know cognitive function later in life or emotional function later in life and things like that? Is that something you could speculate on or, or think about? Yeah, I think I well personally within the context of surgery, I think there'd be a fascinating population to look at with regards to aging populations, and the research hasn't been done yet. But I think there is potential protecting factors around continuous professional developments and how that might actually uh, protect um, cognition and brain mechanisms. So I won't necessarily talk specifically about surgery, but it is an interesting point. We, we know now it's becoming well established that sleep deprivation impacts on a myriad of health conditions and particularly things like cardiovascular health, dementia um, and even things like obesity. Mm. So. We're, we're beginning to see a lot of these correlations and we obviously know then that all of these sort of things are, are kind of the main leading causes of morbidity and mortality within modern society. You know, back in the old day, we used to die from um, communicable diseases, but now the predominant causes of death are all of these non-communicable diseases, which are actually lifestyle um, led. So absolutely, we, we're finding ourselves in, a, in a, suppose, a an epidemic of um non-communicable diseases which is being contributed by not just things like poor exercise you know poor diet but actually sleep deprivation and comparing ourselves to our you know uh, ancestors 100 years ago the average man and woman is sleeping in an, an hour and a half less now than what they did 100 100 years ago that's incredible and i i do remember reading something a little while ago that described our relationship with sleep and food as being uh, sleep deprivation makes our body stingy with calories. So it makes us want more and makes us burn them less effectively. So that that feels like it, it's in there. And it's a total side conversation. I was reading about baseball in America a while ago, and, and there's been a standout player, apparently. It's not my field. A guy called Mike Trout, who has been off, uh, off uh, record books in terms of statistics over a protracted period of time. And he reckons it's because he tries to sleep 14 hours a day. And that's his sort of magic solution, which it's just, you know, gossipy side conversation. But I thought it was um, I thought it was kind of interesting um, as, a, as a dreadful segue. That takes us to sort of sports and activities. And you've talked in some of the things that, that you mentioned about an ability to regenerate through activity as opposed to just through sleep. So are there mechanisms that work that way? Are there things that we can do that are active recovery? Are, are there practices we can have that help us recover in, in more um, sort of positive action ways as opposed to, you know, rest and recovery? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to touch briefly on the point you actually just made about um, that, that sports person yeah. in America. Um, just because we're actually doing research within Trinity College at the moment, we have the uh, longitudinal um study of exploring you know the different variables with regards to aging and what we are actually is beginning to seeing we're beginning to see is actually that too much sleep is actually bad as well <laughs> okay um so unfortunately it does seem like it's about finding that sweet spot as with everything we talk about within life so um it, i certainly I, I think that might be a bit of folk psychology from 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 him but there certainly perhaps is more of a relationship when we're talking about high performance athletes and whether they actually need, need more sleep or not. Cool. You talked about then, I suppose, that idea of active recovery. Yeah. I think it's a really fascinating area of research, which really hasn't been scrapped. It hasn't scratched the surface. We talk about active recovery a lot within the sports realm. You know, you might have gone out for 
you know a long run yesterday and or you might have done like a hard session in the gym and you're going to choose today to be your rest day or alternatively you can have it to be an active recovery day so active recovery might mean going for a walk or it might doing some some yoga or something something that's a little bit less strenuous but when we talk about it in the context of work active recovery is actually about okay how can i reduce the stress that has been accumulating throughout my work day um, at the end of my work day or at the, at the weekend and is that best done by watching you know television or you know doing something I suppose a bit monotonous or should I be engaging in something like learning a new instrument or reading a book or going for a run and what the research is beginning to suggest is that when we actually engage in these sort of activities that we begin to activate the pleasure and reward system within our brains, which is mediated by dopamine and serotonin, which are those sort of good hormones. And what it does is it elicits that kind of um, adverse response that that stress, that stress load. So TV actually can increase stress responses, particularly now. I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but you turn on the news at six o'clock in the evening and it will, it will make you more stressed out than the work day did. So um, actually engaging in these sort of other activities seems to be more effective in reducing that stress response, which will then help you get a better night's sleep and be more recovered for the next day. When we talk about physical activity and exercise, um, they actually seem to, to find that if you do any sort of strenuous exercise after a work day, that that's actually not as as useful as if you just went and did a light jog or you did you know a small walk or something like that and the reason for that is that if you go for a very hard workout after a day's work first of all you're using up any sort of calorific intake that you might have used throughout the day and you risk putting yourself i suppose in a calorific deficit in that instance but what else you do is you increase the the stress responses when you do exercise that's too hard and trying to wind that down further then before going to sleep can be quite difficult. So I don't know if you've ever gone for a run at eight or nine at night and then you try to go to sleep soon after, you will probably find it quite hard because your heart rate is still quite high, your respira- respiratory rate is quite high, your temperature is quite high. Whereas if you do something that's a little bit more relaxing but equally challenging to, to a certain degree, it seems to find that nice sweet spot. What we want to do is when we look at the EGs of people who are you know, stressed out versus people who are more relaxed. We see within the stressed out people, they have what's called beta brain waves firing, kind of little rapid ups and downs in, in the EEG, which indicates, you know, that person is thinking an awful lot. And what we want to switch them to is that alpha brain wave, which is much more slow, it's much more relaxed, and it begins to transition us into the state of sleep. And it's about recognizing, I suppose, in that instance, Sleep is not a switch and sleep is a transition. So if you want to get a good night's sleep, you need to begin that process two to three hours beforehand. I was nodding furiously when you were speaking about evening runs. Um, I, I just, like, if I do it, I'm useless. I'm, I'll be up till midnight or I'll be, like, trying to sleep with my heart rate bouncing around. Um, something yeah. else that, that was in my mind when you were, were speaking here was one of the things I like to do, this is maybe oversharing, when I'm in a state where I, I want to recover is, I combine listening to audiobooks with doing jigsaw puzzles because that's how cool I am. But what I really like about that is I feel that it gives me a combination of activities that utilize or use a range of my functions in a way that I find calming. So each on their own isn't sufficient. But by combining 
that thinking process with a bit of problem solving physical process, I get almost a different outcome on myself. Does that make sense? That's interesting, James. I, I don't know an awful lot in this area and it certainly doesn't, it makes you very cool. I don't know many people <laughs> do by manual tasks like that. But when we look at what, when we talked about, say, learning a new instrument after a day's work, the reason that that doesn't seem to be fatiguing is because you're actually activating a different part of the brain that hasn't been activated throughout the day. So if you were, you know, doing an awful lot of decision making throughout the day and then you decide to come home in the evening and do you know, a game that involves an awful lot of decisions, you're going to find that task pretty tiring pretty quickly. But if you're doing, you know, learning a new instrument, it's creative, um, it's innovative, you're, you're, you know, getting some reward and satisfaction from, from learning that instrument in and of itself. It's actually not fatiguing because you have two different parts of the brain that have been activated throughout the day. So I think that might maybe that might be what's happening with your brain, but I, I don't know, we might need to stick you under an FMRI. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Speaking as someone who can't do five minutes of a jigsaw puzzle without wanting to throw it across the room, it's the least interesting for me. Um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned really early doors. You mentioned self-determination theory, which we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, and it just occurred to me as you were talking, I wondered how much the, it, it mattered to be doing activities that might uh, might help satisfy some of those needs. Because I was I was thinking about, you were talking about learning skills and things, and it just struck me that things like um, competence and feeling connected, for me, certainly, and for some of the experience I've had when I've been managing managing larger teams, flipping into spaces where we might not be having that met in existing work can sometimes be energizing. And I was wondering if there's, if there's either any research intended around that kind of thing, or if not, like where you think that relationship between self-determination theory might sit within performance and particularly around sort of sleep and fatigue. Jane, we should get you in on my research team because you are, we have literally just started looking at this. Um, so I was really interested in the idea of how self-determination can actually help mitigate or mediate fatigue responses, particularly in recovery processes. And what we found within our research, say a culmination of pools data of surgeons and physiotherapists, was that, yes, if you perceive an increased level of autonomy in your non-work activities, if you perceive an increased level of competence in non-work activities, you will actually uh, speed up that recovery process. And I think this actually resonates an awful lot then, particularly for uh, females working within, um, within healthcare systems who have those additional responsibilities when they come home. It becomes difficult to fulfill those basic psychological needs. What was actually a startling finding was that workload didn't uh, predict that fatigue response and actually an increased level of work was predicted to be good with regards to thriving in, in, in an individual's life. So that would kind of speak to that idea that if you're working, but you're also learning a skill outside of work that, you know, that can actually help you thrive in your, in your day-to-day living. Which just, you know... I've never thought about it in that sense, but now you now you say it and now you think about it and you reflect on your own lives and the things you see around you, it makes sense, right? It makes sense that that if we, yes, we know that research shows these are things that we need as humans from our lives, and then we say, okay, well, that's being stretched and not necessarily met in work, then it stands to reason that it would be fair to at least look at whether then doing those things outside of work helps you recover more quickly. And be ready for work again the next day. It just it, it makes 
infinitely more sense than before I asked the question. So thank you. Um, I guess uh, for our listeners, most we do have some wonderful listeners in the healthcare system who I know will be listening. We've got some, some lovely, um, some lovely NHS trust people down in Bristol and um, across, across actually a few different countries who listen, but we also have a huge listenership that are interested in how to make work better for the people they manage, they lead. And I'd be really interested to know what you think, what lessons there are for all of us about how we can best structure our sort of, uh, where work sits in our life against things like sleep and recovery? Yeah, again, a brilliant question, but also so difficult to ha- to answer, mainly because I suppose the professions differ in how they respond to things like sleep and fatigue. But I suppose generally, what we've been looking at within our own research, so we did within my own PhD, we did kind of a collection of data and a synthesis of those findings to try and form some sort of an intervention that can help a person go from being fatigued to thriving in work. And one of the incidental findings within our research was actually that you can be both. And I suppose that was a really interesting finding. And we found that it was mediated by three different things. So the first was recovery processes. Increasing those opportunities for recovery within individuals who feel fatigue means that you increase their opportunities to be able to thrive in their lives. Second was actually increasing psychological capital. And when we talk about psychological capital, it's really four different personal resources. It's self-efficacy, hope, optimism, and resilience. And within healthcare, these terms, unfortunately, have kind of negative connotations associated with them. But when we peel it back and look at the psychological literature, there's a lot that we can work on in, in increasing those sort of personal resources. And then the final thing is actually about developing psychological skills. In, in healthcare, we kind of have overemphasized, you know, the learning of technical skill proficiency, particularly within our surgeons. The expectation, you know, that our surgeon will go in and, and operate on an individual and that 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 determines their level of competency, those days are gone. You know, there's a certain level of expectation that they will be able to control their emotions within the workplace, to be able to regulate themselves and to be able to communicate effectively and have good interpersonal relationships because we know all of these sort of things improve patient safety now. So the, 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 the horizons have broadened in that regard. So there's sort of three really interesting things we found within our research. And the intervention we've actually looked at in trying to address those is beginning at that level of self-determination. And we've started with an intervention coaching um, program with our surgeons where they've had to do, say, six hours of coaching um, across a few months and really identify in and of themselves, what's one thing I could do to improve my performance? That might be something in my personal life, might be something in my work life. And they go through that process and they work with that coach to help identify that. And there certainly seems to be some benefits to that, but there are still those barriers like culture and organizational variables which inhibit an individual from being able to do these things uh, for a long time. So we do need to begin to look at addressing fatigue um, through systematic efforts like fatigue risk management systems. The aviation industry is really good at doing this. And we should also then begin to look at what are the cultural things that are happening within professions around what's expected of an individual. So it's not just healthcare. We look at the law profession. We look at business. This idea of staying in work until 12 o'clock at night. We know that this is not healthy, but yet it's somewhat expected. So having those conversations around, okay, what is actually the minimum amount of work I can do here to get the best outcome um, while also keeping my well-being optimal? 
that's the space of conversation we need to be in. That's brilliant. And I think it's probably really worth mentioning to listeners uh, that they might, if they find that interesting, they might want to go back and listen to our episode on uh, psychological capital, which we did recently as well, because I think it was a, it's got, it's got a lot of useful tips for people across, the, across all the professions as well. Um, I know, because I can feel it already, that James will at some point be saying, we've got to wrap up soon, we're running out of time, but I'm going to squeeze in one more question. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you, What's brought you to this research? What is it that you, what what's what is it that's that makes it so important to you, and and why have you ended up caring about this topic so much? That that wasn't on the pre schedule, Jane. <laughs> um, I know it, it's it's a great question, and unfortunately, I, I don't have the kind of the brilliant response i think as with all research it seems to evolve the question the original question was around actual um objectifying assessment of surgical performance and what evolved from that was how confounding a role of fatigue was in trying to assess performance in the first instance but my passion for the subject has evolved a lot over the years and Personally, I I have a a big interest in the areas of lifestyle medicine and positive psychology and the huge potential role that they have in optimizing well-being for the day-to-day person. You know, I think as as disciplines and in healthcare, we tend to be quite reactive. We tend to be dealing with uh, population cohorts who are um, at a state of chronicity or they're in acute state of, you know, um, physical or mental illness. And that puts, I suppose, the rest of the population who are, you know, just getting by or who are just getting by in their day-to-day work but could do better. We're not doing enough research and trying to to make those people, I suppose, work better or feel better in and of themselves. So I certainly think the areas of positive psychology and things like lifestyle, how can we actually, you know, make these empirically researched, embed them within um, the the kind of norms of what's expected of uh, medicine and w- regards to what's expected of organize- organizational um, institutions and I suppose change that narrative um, from now on. So I, that's that's all I can really say on the topic. I don't have the anything amazing to say on it. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. I mean, and, and your your passion for the subject has come through all throughout this conversation, which is excellent. While you were speaking earlier, one of the things that kept popping into my mind was a book called Poverty Safari um, by a Scottish guy, Darren McGarvey. I can't remember his surname anyway. It, it's, it's really interesting. And one of the things he speaks about is some of the challenges associated with chronic poverty. And it, and it feels like there's a lot of overlap between the depletion and exhaustion that exists in some of those situations where every decision is heightened and has more impact um, and things like that. But it feels like there's a real crossover with some of the conversations here. And, and, and it feels to me that our understanding of these factors can have large impacts, not just within our sort of professional spheres and, and you know, the domains of specific work, but also more broadly, um, which I think is, is, you know, it's exciting. It's a really exciting topic. Um, that said, Jane was right, and I was sort of sniffing around the end of this podcast. So I'm, I'm going to draw it to an end because we've got loads of great conversation there. Just before we go, though, is there anything that people can do to learn more about your work and the things that you're involved in? Yeah, I mean, you can you can follow me on Twitter. I'm on Daily Furter on Twitter. You can um, connect to me on, on LinkedIn either. 
I have a Google Scholar profile if you want to look at some of my research published around sleep deprivation and performance in physiotherapy and in surgery. Also, with regards to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, I, I don't know, I've, I've mentioned the big bad elephant in the room, mm. but um, I've published some research in that, in that domain as well. And particularly for any of our sort of healthcare workers, I, I have a series of lectures on Physio Plus, which is um, the largest physiotherapy uh, continuous professional development um, program. And there's a kind of a suite of, of lectures there talking about the theory and the sleep physiology and how we can incorporate sleep practice with regards to patient outcomes. So particularly for healthcare workers, that might be quite interesting. Brilliant. Okay, well, I've really enjoyed this and it's just time for me to say thank you. So a huge thank you from me. And thank you from me. Thank you, guys. Okay, so that was our conversation with Dale. And and we spoke all about sleep and we spoke about fatigue and we spoke about activities that recharge and and that whole domain and what that means for our our work and our performance and our, I guess, to some extent, satisfaction in life as well. So um, I hugely enjoyed that. Um, Jane, did you have anything that you want to reflect on or call out from that conversation? Um. It was a great conversation, wasn't it? Don't you think? Like he's just so knowledgeable and so able to explain the history of how things have evolved. And I guess that probably explains why my reflection is not about sleep or even about fatigue. Um, My reflection is that fundamentally we have built ways of working that have become so embedded in some of our professions despite being harmful and despite being based on flawed assumptions, we continue to let these things happen. And I understand they stand, they can't change overnight. Things like, you know, the resident system of, of, uh, of healthcare uh, doctors and loads of other things that I can think of, you know, around there's all sorts of evidence around the way lawyers work and, and, you know, the per hour billing and all of that. We've built these systems because they, we thought they were doing something right. We've worked out, they're probably not doing something right, but we are so overwhelmed by the idea of restructuring an entire way of doing something that we just kind of run away from it. And that's a little bit how it feels that we're, we're doing harm to people, but we're not actually doing anything about it. And that makes me both sad, but also makes me realize it's not like it's not anyone's fault, but it's going to take it's, it's no one's fault. It's happening, but we've all got to work together to figure out how to fix it, I guess. And, and, you know, I mean, this could be another conversation, couldn't it? We could go off on this. But history weighs heavy on us in many domains, not just in work. And sometimes we need to change history to change the present, right? But that's a conversation I will not enter into today. Um, I guess the thing that I will enter into, I just want to touch on, is the little, the little nugget that I thought stood out, which was super helpful, which was that sometimes we can set goals and, and they're unhelpful for us, right? And so, so Dale's point about, you know, if we're targeting eight hours and 20 minutes of sleep and we end up sleeping seven hours and 40 minutes, the realization in our minds that we've not quite reached that goal can lead to sort of self-fulfilling feelings of fatigue and decline in performance and all that negativity that goes with it. So there's just a little moment of, you know, just let's just relax a little bit sometimes. Let's just, you know, let's float in the river of life or something suitably hippie like that, that that I think is helpful when it comes to self-management. So I think knowing these guiding principles, having good intentions, but holding them lightly is a really helpful thing, I would say, as, as a piece of advice in this space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Well, let us leave it there. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is James. Uh, thank you very much for listening to that podcast. And please do share it and review it if you enjoyed it. 
And don't forget, you can learn more about our coaching, workshops, courses, and development programs on our website. That's www.worldofwork.io. Again, www.worldofwork.io.